Hello, everyone, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, another of our Secretaries series, and this is a presentation that was made by Simon Atkinson, the Secretary of the Department of Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Communications at the National Portrait Gallery in Canberra on Thursday the 24th of June earlier this year. Simon Atkinson was appointed Secretary to the Department on the 1st of February last year. Simon has an extensive experience in the public sector and prior to his appointment as Secretary, he served as Deputy Secretary at the Fiscal Group at Treasury. And indeed, prior to that, he held senior positions in finance, defence, and the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. So ladies and gentlemen, we present to you Simon Atkinson. Good morning. It's lovely to see so many familiar faces in the crowd today. I'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. I'd also like to pay respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to any other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians who are with us today. I'd like to thank those in my department who assisted me with my speech for today, including Richard Windia, Ashley Sedgwick and Louise Rowlings for their input and advice. I'd also like to thank the Institute of Public Administration Australia for the opportunity to speak to you here in one of our amazing cultural institutions in our portfolio. My message today is simple. Keep growing across your life in the service. It fills me with joy every time I hear the public service praised for the exceptional work we do. Many years ago, my parents gave me a book of powerful speeches throughout history. One of my favourite speeches in the collection is by Theodore Roosevelt, where he talks about the strenuous life. Roosevelt calls on people to embrace the values of duty, service, sacrifice and perseverance in the face of strife and adversity. He calls for courage in the service of the nation, regardless of risk or hardship. Far better, he says, to dare mighty things, even if the path to triumph is checkered by failure. Roosevelt urges care and integrity in the delivery of government services, whether at home or abroad, and he presses the fundamental ideal of putting the needs of others and the nation ahead of our own. While this speech was delivered more than 120 years ago, these characteristics and ideals speak to my vision of Australia's modern public service. As leaders, we must promote and reward endeavour, courage and innovation, even where the risk is failure. Together, we need to inspire our people to see their service as a higher calling, to serve the people and communities of Australia, to see that our collective commitment to the ideals and institutions of the APS underpins our liberal democracy and that hard work and dedication to serving the Australian people really makes a difference. Many of us in the APS share this sense of pride in serving Australia and Australians as we do our work and enjoy the feeling that we're contributing something back to our great country. Not everyone understands this part of our motivations and we don't talk about it enough. 
We should say it publicly and to others and celebrate what we do and what we achieve for Australia, even if much of it passes unknown to those that benefit. Every one of us in the APS has both the capacity and indeed a responsibility to help improve the lives of the Australian people every day. I joined the APS as a defence graduate. I had a thought for service to do my bit for Australia, learned in large part from my grandfather with his values of volunteerism, service, hard work and giving to something bigger than yourself, all wrapped up in his love of Australia, his pride in Australians and his service in the war. The intellectual curiosity and work ethic I brought with me came from my parents, who never stop. I've been privileged to have a life in the service. I've had amazing experiences, faced daunting challenges, and I like to think that I've contributed a little bit to Australia. And most importantly, I've met, worked with, and been shaped by a pantheon of brilliant, thoughtful, and great people. My time in the service across so many agencies and so many experiences with so many people has grown me both professionally and personally in a way that I can never repay. And that's my message today. Keep growing and help others in the service to grow across their time in the service. It's about the importance of developing and evolving across our service and helping guide others to grow. I'm also focusing today on systems level leadership in the modern world and what it takes for us to be good at it. Over the past year, the APS has shown what an exceptional institution we are. You can only know your true mettle when tested. And over the last year, we've been tested, many of us beyond the limits of the endurance we thought we had. We've not only risen to the challenge, we've been outstanding across the board. The Australian public will never see the full extent of what we do to serve them. They see the visible service delivery roles, particularly those they interact with, like Centrelink, Medicare, the tax office and health services. But they don't see the behind the scenes work that happens across policy, program management, regulation, governance and corporate services, to name a few, to support the government, to keep the economy running and to keep Australians safe. Like most of our service throughout our lives, much of this will go unnoticed by the public. Within my own portfolio, one unwritten story is how we've worked well with all levels of government, industry and unions to keep maritime shipping lanes open and maintained efficient road and rail freight movements throughout COVID. This enabled the continued flow of domestic freight and key exports and imports, everything from iron ore exports to groceries and household essentials to medical supplies. The huge efforts we've made with stakeholders to keep bulk commodity and containerised shipping operational in a safe way ensured these critical parts of the economy worth around $10 billion a week have continued through COVID. This is just one small story amongst hundreds across all portfolios of the value of the APS through COVID. We should be proud of our role in assisting Steward Australia through COVID in a health social and economic sense. We are one of only five countries with an economy that's larger than it was before COVID. The APS is an amazing and diverse institution that's been a central pillar of our Westminster system of government for more than 100 years. We undertake functions every day that affect Australia, our society and our place in the world. 
More than 240,000 Australians work directly for the Australian government in one form or another. And many more deliver government functions through GBEs or outsourcing or contract arrangements. And even more deliver Commonwealth initiatives and partnerships through the states and territories. There are around 80,000 people in the ADF and another 16,000 or so in the civilian arm of the APS providing for our nation's defence and keeping people safe. We have around 19,000 people working in the tax office, serving in offices right around Australia. There are about 6,000 people administering some $85 billion of health funding a year and managing the Commonwealth's pandemic response. More than 5,000 lawyers, auditors and other professionals manage the Commonwealth's legal and integrity systems. Our scientific research agencies, from CSIRO to Geoscience Australia, are staffed by around 11,000 people undertaking cutting-edge research. With such diversity of functions and business types, what it takes is a mix of capabilities, characteristics and cultures that are fit for purpose for each of those diverse functions. These things will be different for different departments and agencies and parts of departments as they're all designed to achieve their outcomes in the best possible way. An aviation safety regulator needs a different business and culture to a macroeconomic policy agency, which is different again to a frontline service delivery agency or scientific research agency. Different again to program management and those focused on Commonwealth state relations or bespoke commercial arrangements. What we need is a modern, flexible, apolitical public service that's fit for purpose for myriad tasks. And we have one. As demonstrated during COVID, we are up to the task. But we need to keep modernising and adapting the service to remain up to the evolving task of government. In a rapidly changing world, we need to evolve and develop APS leaders and to evolve and develop the APS as a whole. As I said earlier, keep growing and growing others. I often say the only thing you can change is how you deploy yourself to shape the broader system, be it your workplace, government, Australia or the world. As public servants, it's in each of us to grow across our lives and learn to have new and better impacts on the systems and people around us. Many years ago, I was on a leadership program where we thought about self-articulating that big question, who do I want to be? The answer continues to evolve, but that day, after much reflection and with much meaning underneath each word, my clearly aspirational answer was, I want to be a happy and healthy leader who makes a great contribution to those around me and to Australia. And some days I even managed to do a little bit of that. As I went about trying to learn to be the best version of that, I triggered a series of aha moments for me about systems, people, relationships, and a growing understanding of myself that's still evolving. It's this growing in the service on your own pathway to who you want to be to support Australia that I want for everyone in the service. And it's how we evolve and ensure the service has the capable, committed people it needs. This takes great effort and focus to ensure we are reflective, self-aware, willing to listen and really hear others, and hardest of all, be willing to change and grow. I work with many people across the service, listening and guiding them 
through development, self-experiment, and helping them find their own aha moments on their journeys of self-discovery and growth. I think this guiding others in development is one of the highest responsibilities of secretaries and all SES and APS leaders. It's how we nurture the next generation of the service. Today I also want to focus on systems leadership and how important it is to the future of the APS and Australia. Australia and all elements of our society and an economy exists within a series of extremely complex global systems, be they geopolitical, economic or social systems, involving competing interests and diverse structures, values, relationships, priorities, hierarchies and choices. As we've seen throughout COVID, these global issues impact significantly on domestic Australia. And when we look at our health, education, security, industry, social, economic, transport, environment, communications and infrastructure policy settings and delivery, to be good, they need to be considered as complex systems within the context of broader national and global systems. We must also look at their linkages to each other as policy settings that contribute to the fabric of the nation. So as we move down from global systems to national systems, then to local systems, to individual workplaces, to communities, good governments need to understand the systems they are strands of and their place and contribution to broader systems, both nationally and globally. In my view, People can be systems leaders at all levels, be it leading in an individual workplace or navigating complex international issues. There are three key elements to being a good systems leader. One, having complex systems insight. Completely understanding your system, how it operates, the motivations of all elements and actors, how it's influenced, and the language people use to engage with it. Two, Coalition building and advocacy, the ability to coalesce groups around a direction and find pathways to success of the system. The third element is collaborative leadership skills. High-end collaboration, the ability to listen, to hear and understand the perspectives of others and the true wisdom behind them and bring people together for joint solutions. If you have these systems leadership capacities, you can catalyse and empower collective and coordinated action by many others with very different viewpoints, responsibilities, levers and tools. This is much more powerful than individuals controlling or directing action themselves. In our federation, this is incredibly important as often responsibilities and levers critical to Australia's national interest lie with multiple levels of government and sometimes with the private sector. At its highest level, the National Cabinet represents a forum for national systems level leadership. It's a whole of government system of the Commonwealth and whole of government systems of the states and territories taking collective and coordinated action. National Cabinet has used the levers and tools available to them to manage Australia's COVID-19 response in the interests of all Australians. While recognising they start with different viewpoints, Leaders are empowered to coordinate collective action across health, economic, social and security issues. In the modern complex world, for the APS to successfully support governments, 
we also need to be adept practitioners of systems leadership and deeply understand our operating environment. For the APS SES cohort, the essential capabilities and personal characteristics we expect are set out in the integrated leadership system and the APS values. Building on these, I have a set of leadership qualities and behaviours that I expect to see in my team, which support the growth of systems thinking and leadership. These are, one, empower others to succeed. We need to guide and support our people to deliver and make decisions safely. Two, collaborate, not compete to succeed. This is really important to me. It's important that our SES cohort work together, bringing together the best of their talents and abilities. I don't want to see people hoarding information trying to show each other up or highlighting each other's mistakes. Number three, understand people well in order to lead and communicate well. It's important to get to know people and invest in relationships and understand what matters to them. Four, interpret and give context. Don't do people's jobs for them, but provide context about their operating environment and how you see things. This is one of the greatest gifts a leader can give to help people succeed. Five, lean into others' perspectives and value the contribution of everyone. It's easy for us to engage with those who think like us and share our language sets, but it's actually more important to seek out and value the perspectives of those who don't think or speak like us because there is richness and genuine diversity in their views that we will otherwise miss. It's incredibly important to understand the experiences of all Australians, not just those groups with the loudest voices and the most access. Six is build capability in networks. Trust, protect and grow others. Treat people with decency and respect. It's also really important for everyone in our organisations to feel valued by the people around them and their leadership teams. Seven is be dynamic. Have an inquiring mind and be willing to change rather than doing things the way they've always been done. We should always question conventional wisdom to make sure it's still fit for purpose in a changing world. Expect people to deliver and have an impact, but also to have fun. We spend a lot of time at work and it's important that we deliver everything that's required of us and do it well. But it's also important that people enjoy what they do and feel that what they do is valued by the people around them. Understand the system and the shape of yourself in it and deploy yourself to achieve the best outcome. As I tell my SES group, most of the time, your natural shape will be about right to achieve a fit-for-purpose outcome. But sometimes, maybe 10 or 20% of the time, a different shape version of you would achieve a better outcome. So we should consciously think about how we deploy ourselves in the system to get the best outcome. And 10, practice and develop new ways of impacting others and systems to the betterment of Australia and the Australian people. These characteristics were front and centre between our APS institutions during the depths of 2020. And they are what, what help us to excel and succeed. 
if we can all keep growing and guide others to grow across the service and be adept at systems leadership, we will improve our capacity to deal with the complexities and challenges Australia will face over the decades to come. This is particularly important as the world reopens and reshapes into a new chapter post-COVID and Australia's place in that world forms. To that end, there are a few policy challenges I'd like to quickly highlight. These are key to my portfolio as they'll be important for determining the future shape and prosperity of Australia and will require skilled systems leadership to achieve the best outcomes for Australia and Australians. These are international reopening, the future of global norms and regulation of the online world, and aligning national resources with national interest with a focus on mega projects. The Australian people have been extremely well served through COVID-19, with the combined efforts of Commonwealth and state governments effectively containing COVID over the past year. Central to this was the introduction of 14 days hotel quarantine for people coming into Australia. This protection mechanism created a safe bubble and minimised the spread of COVID and the need for lockdowns. It also decreased the flow of people into Australia from around 400,000 a week to less than 7,000 a week. This is a 98% decrease. This has had a very significant economic and social impact on Australians, particularly as we are ranked as the 13th most socially globalised nation in the world. And we are all working on reopening the flow as soon as possible. We face a different set of reopening challenges than other countries like the UK and US, who have linear pathways to success based on vaccinating more people thereby decreasing the numbers of people who get sick or die from COVID-19 to a point where they will be open with vaccine protection. Australia's circumstances are very different as our quarantine has served to protect Australians from the levels of disease and death experienced in these countries. We and a few other countries like New Zealand face a different set of reopening challenges. We are accustomed to not having sustained community transmission of COVID with a very low tolerance among the states for any outbreaks. Other countries who have sustained transmission for 18 months will be much more tolerant in accepting of the inevitable transmission that will occur when borders are opened. I don't know the timing of it, as that's a matter for my health colleagues, but I consider the end state for Australia to materially reopen and reintegrate with the rest of the world will most likely require us to be protected by a vaccination like most countries, not 14 days quarantine. The pathway to this is challenging, as it'll mean health officials and system leaders will need to make more hard decisions in the public interest to reopen. In 2013, Bill Gates said, the internet is becoming the town square for the global village of tomorrow. We are now in tomorrow, and social media and other platforms, including gaming platforms, seem a bit like the town squares that Bill Gates foreshadowed. Social media offers consumers access to knowledge, services, information, communication, and communities on a scale not possible before the digital age. The point I want to make is that for public policy people, for believers in institutions of government and society, these virtual environments are a governance challenge and conundrum. As we confront the growing range of harms that are perpetrated and experienced online, we have to confront difficult questions about how and who should tackle these harms and what role can and should governments adopt 
These town squares are privately owned, yet they're a forum for public debate and discussion in our society. Private companies are governing and opining on a range of harms that our citizens are exposed to. Are we comfortable with the recourse for someone feeling seriously or dangerously harassed by someone inside a massive multiplayer online game being the terms of service for the game? Is this a problem? Could this behaviour contravene any law or regulation? Should it? If the laws of a country apply, which laws of which country? There are less challenging questions, but the point remains. The world that we are increasingly living in, our lives within, a world where we are interacting with strangers, consuming goods, expressing opinions, is increasingly a privately foreign-owned world. We in public policy must grapple with this. Almost two decades ago, I was in finance when I found a fascinating book in a second-hand bookshop. It was on fiscal policy in England in the 1940s. Some people might say that's not that fascinating, but I found it fascinating. <laughs> Probably says more about me than the book. Um, its central thesis was that the resources of a nation generally need to be deployed consistent with its national interest at all times, and that this alignment needs to be particularly good in periods of increased global competition and even stronger in times of crisis. This thesis still holds. What changes are the national interest investment priorities at any given point in time? One of the choices governments have is to invest in megaprojects. These are projects that have a large enough impact they change the shape of part of the nation. This can take many forms. Some megaprojects have lasting economic and social benefits, while others change settlement patterns. Others, like the Sydney Opera House, are culturally iconic, while others contribute to our nation's defence. They are typically huge in scale, have very long delivery times, and face very significant risks, including technical and operational, emanating from the dynamics of the project itself. Changes in market environments throughout the period of the project and institutional and social related to social, political and economic settings that move over time. These risks typically emerge and evolve over the course of the projects and are not fully foreseeable at the start. To succeed, these projects need complex, bespoke, agile governance that reflects the dynamic characteristics of megaprojects. At a minimum, they need to be flexible enough to deal with changing circumstances and access new opportunities in technology, deliver value for money, allow commerciality, deliver the core project outcomes, align parties' incentives and disincentives, often over very long timeframes across multiple leadership teams and political cycles, and have governability and capacity to deal with turbulence. These are important and hard issues, but they should not deter leaders from undertaking projects like the MBN, the Western Sydney Airport, or the shipbuilding enterprise, or others in future, as they can make a huge contribution to Australia. But what we need to recognise as an APS is that the leadership of mega projects is a specialty that needs systems leadership to bring to bear the right expertise and capabilities to deliver over these long timeframes. 
I'd like to leave you with this one last thought. We get the workplace and APS we create. If we all bring kindness, professionalism, respect and decency to work each day, we'll have a workplace that all of us are happy and proud to come to each day. But above all, continue to keep growing and guiding others to grow across your life in the service. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. Um, I thought that exceeded sensible. Um, <laughs> and in fact, was, was, a, was a really thoughtful, uh, authentic and personal speech. I, I really enjoyed listening to you. Um, I'm just going to pick up on two or three issues that you raised um, and drill, and drill into them a little further. One of them was um, you set out a pretty compelling set of leadership behaviours and qualities that you expect to see in your, your team. Uh, one of those was collaboration. Yeah. Um, and I agree with you that collaborative leadership is incredibly important. And indeed, over my time in the service, I think, I think you see more collaboration in the system than might once have been the case. But for all that, public service and public policy is by its nature a competitive and contested space. Agencies compete for scarce resources, uh, supervisors compete for good people, leaders compete for influence, agencies compete on ideas. So how do you lead in a way that brings together collaborative effort in contested competitive spaces? At the risk of arguing against myself, I'm going to contest your question. Sure. Go ahead. Um, I think we work best as a service when we can manage our instincts for competition and put the broader outcomes of the system we're operating in ahead of ourselves. And I've seen it work very well. We do it extremely well in a crisis. Um, Everybody suspends self-interest through a crisis. We saw it with everybody deploying vast numbers of people to support each other, and it wasn't even a question. When the Secretary said, we need people uh, to support Services Australia to onboard lots and lots of people, we all just jumped in and did it. You know, I spoke to Rebecca and said, what do, exactly do you need? How can I shape it so I can get you the people you need? And we stopped. We stopped delivering a whole bunch of program things. Um, and we all took risk. And um, in a crisis, and it may just be an Australian thing or a public service thing, I'm not sure, but we all banded together, right? There wasn't a single thought for competitiveness at that point. We just wanted the right thing. Um, I think that we can fall back into what I would call lazy competitiveness, where we're not thinking about the outcomes and we're not thinking about priorities and we're not thinking about the importance of things that other people are delivering. Um, I think we're selling ourselves short when we do that. Um, I, I like a leadership team that can come together and say, OK, we need to deliver all of these things. Let's spread our resources in a way that we can all succeed together. I, I don't like the contested idea, um, particularly around agency resources. I think that agencies need to have um, the resources that they need, um, sort of in the space of as much as necessary and as little as possible and be efficient. Um, there, there are natural areas of con contest, I suppose, particularly in the policy realm. Uh, the one thing I would strongly advocate, though, is 
for those things that matter, that really matter, good in policy making for me, or great in policy making for me, is where we come to the table with our relative perspectives. I might come with a, you know, a microeconomic perspective. Secretary of Home Affairs might come with a security perspective. Um, Secretary of Social Services might come with a social policy perspective. Michelle comes with kind of both. Um, but when we're grappling with a complex problem, to find the best outcome for the, for the system, we need to hear each other's perspective, question the why behind it, and find out the wisdom of why that person is taking that position. And if we can all bring those perspectives, understand where everyone's coming from and why, step away from our personal perspectives, and join as a group with a full understanding to work out what is actually in the best interest of the system, taking our own personal preference and perspective out of it, that's what great looks like in collaboration, mm -hmm. and that's what we should strive for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Uh, thank you. Uh, I like the concept of lazy competitiveness and, and working against it. Um, the second thing I'd like to test with you or explore with you is yeah. around capability. So you mentioned some of the mega projects uh, for which your large and very diverse portfolio has responsibility, and of course every portfolio has highly complex, challenging deliverables of one kind or another. How do you think the modern public service can access the capability it needs to deliver those projects successfully? And that's in the context that, you know, you, you hear critics all the time argue that the service has somehow been hollowed out and the capability has suffered. Um, so what's your take on where and how we get the capability we need, be that internally by recruiting and developing the best people we can get, or externally by partnering with external sources of expertise? What's your sort of take on that space? Um, firstly, I don't subscribe to the holiday theory. Mm. Um, I know a lot of people who are ex-public servants like to say, usually the day they leave. Um, the, interestingly enough, I read a speech from a secretary from about 15 years ago who'd just retired and was saying that the people from the generation before who said that they were hollowed out were wrong. Um, yeah, there's a change in the shape of the public service. Um, I think the public service traditions are here and the public service is strong. And people like to talk us down, I don't. Um, the capability strengths that we have, we saw through COVID. The depth is there. The fact that we were able to stand up and give great, frank and fearless advice on things that we'd never experienced before um, and help steward Australia through it is an example of the fact of our capability. Um, there's different global challenges to what there were 20 and 30 years ago and different policy challenges. The structures of them are different um, and the, the size of some of the solutions is different. There's a lot of things that require lots and lots of little things to have outcomes. There's not always a big bang thing that's easy to do. Um, and people are often looking for a big bang thing in public policy. Um, the, what was the second part again? I was just getting it. So focused on the other one. Where will we find the capability to deliver ah, the, right, the yeah. complex projects? So um, firstly, we grow it. We continue to grow it, and we've grown it the same way we have probably for 40 or 50 years. We bring people into the service. We train people. They learn on the job. Um, people learn the public service values. Um, graduate programs often help with that, but we also have lots of other programs for people who are going to take different roles. Um, 
as I went through, we're such a diverse APS that we actually have pipelines for growing the capability, and they're the same sort of pipelines. Um, so growing APS capability is important. The other thing is tapping into the things we don't have, because there are some things that it's not good common sense for us to necessarily have a lot of detail on. Um, one of the great examples, once again, from COVID was uh, setting up the IFAM program, um, which is a freight assistance program, um, which literally required us to be negotiating with freight forwarders and airlines the movement of uh, export freight with a subsidy arrangement inside of it, but a floating subsidy arrangement that needed to move based on commercial terms. Um, do you think anyone in the service had ever run one of them before? <laughs> Anyway, what we did is we pulled together um, private sector expertise. We had the former CEO of Toll came in and worked with us for a year and took a leadership role, headed the commercial negotiations and knew everything about that system. But what we successfully did is we linked him and others with that expertise into proper program management inside of um, transparent systems and proper public service probity. And we actually had a very efficient, very effective program that was based around private sector expertise. And so I think the thing is we need to grow our core capabilities but also shape ourselves so that we speak enough of the same languages to access external expertise when needed. The other thing is, this is my understanding various perspectives and understanding the shape of yourself in a system. You need to know what you do and don't know. And you need to know when it's time to phone a friend. And look around and go, ooh, that's a thing. Oh, I don't know how to do that. And let's go and ask some people who've done it before. Um, so that's really important in terms of tapping into capability. So we've got to grow ourselves, but also make ourselves open to the world of other opportunity. Sure. Thank you. And the third thing I wouldn't mind exploring is, and, and jumping off the fact that in your speech, and I must say I, th I found this really refreshing from the point of view of, of a departmental secretary who many people on the service would have got, well, you've got to the top of the tree, but you still talked about still growing, still evolving, and uh, I think that was really, I thought that was really refreshing. But it begs the question that uh, during your speech you referenced aha moments during your career, mm -hmm. but you didn't really elucidate what those aha moments <laughs> were. Uh, would you be able to share one or two of those with us? Yeah, okay. Um, let's find some safe ones, shall we? Um, <laughs> very frequently the aha moments are self-reflections on why something didn't go very well. Um, so probably one of the, uh, the biggest aha moments I had was in that same leadership program that I was on, as everybody goes, sitting up in barrel somewhere. Um, and we were in a, an exercise where we were, everyone was talking, there was a problem solving thing, and I wasn't quite sure what I was doing. Anyway, um, and there was a problem. And at that time in my self and leadership, I'd sort of been rewarded for being able to identify an issue think through and solve a problem quickly and fix it. People like people who can do that, right? Um, and so my general mode was problem, think through, solve, fix. Um, in this particular thing, I was like, right, I've got the answer. 
Now, oh, got to do collaboration. That means convincing everyone else I'm right. <laughs> so um, I came up with an answer and then tried to convince everyone my answer was correct. Um, and what I did is I filled the space and I pushed out lots of other voices and all other solutions other than the one I'd come up with, right? Which is fine, so long as my solution was the best solution. Um, anyway, in the middle of one of these things, someone made a strange face at me while I was trying to convince everyone I was right. Um, I was like, hmm, maybe I should hear what that person has to say. And the person said something completely different to me in a completely different language that I completely didn't understand. And I listened and I was like, mm, step back. And then I actually heard and asked why. And that was the first time I understood, sounds stupid, but first time I really understood that there was a great value in diversity of views and languages. Because when I listened, I was like, oh, I'd missed a whole part of the possible solution set because I just couldn't see it. I was bringing my particular national security and economic frame and going, oh, wait a minute, there's some people there. Um, and so <laughs> I opened, brought that in, and, and listened and asked questions as my primary starting point. And I shifted from giving answers to asking questions is the way I approach issues now. And it allows me to empower other people to solve things, to support them and ask questions, um, without needing to be able to solve things myself. And it allowed me to step back into a space and to allow other people to succeed to the best of their ability and to collaborate and get better solutions than I could on my own. Powerful example. Thank you for sharing that. So someone who once worked in the White House once said to me that in the White House, the most valuable commodity is the President's time. Uh, and I suspect in your portfolio today <laughs> that the most valuable commodity is your time. So I just want to thank you very sincerely for the time and the generosity of, uh, of time that you've been able to give us today and obviously the thought and effort that went into your speech and your remarks. So thank you very much. And there we have it. We finished with Michael Manthorpe, the Commonwealth Ombudsman and the host of our Secretary Series today with Simon Atkinson and wonderful insights there uh, from Simon Atkinson after a great career and certainly lots to look forward to when you think about some of the aspects that uh, Simon has raised today uh, in that very important speech that he's made back in June to the public service there at the National Portrait Gallery in Canberra. And a very big thanks uh, not only to Simon Atkinson for his presentation but also to Michael Manthorpe, the Commonwealth Ombudsman for his hosting of that particular event. And to you, the audience, a big thank you once again for coming back to listen to Work With Purpose. We very much appreciate your uh, great support of the program. If you do see any of the social media promotion, please pass it along to your friends. And indeed, if you do have the opportunity to leave us a rating or a review on any of the uh, podcatchers that are out there, that will certainly help us to be found. A big thanks to IPA, as always, for their support for Work With Purpose and indeed the Australian Public Service Commission. Without the support of either IPA and the APSC, this program would not happen. Once again, a big thanks to Simon Atkinson and also to Michael Manthorpe and to you, the audience, 
Thank you very much for coming back once again. We'll be back at the same time in two weeks. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. 